Okay, we'll try with it. Um, cool, cool to be here um, tonight. Um, a few people have asked me about my dog sticker. Um, my um, uh, people are just very curious about this black Labrador I'm wearing. Um, it's um, uh, my friend Talia, who we live with. She uh, works at Customs, and uh, you can support a Customs dog, but she bought home like a thousand of these stickers. And my little almost two-year-old Luna is like mad about dogs. So we have a stack on the coffee table, um, and, um, and when she gets up in the morning, she goes to the table, requests one sticker for her, and then one for me to wear. Um, and so we match for the day. So it's my Father's Day vibe, thought I'd leave it on there, just a um, little bit of uh, paternal vibes there. Um, yeah, and um, just by way of starting off, uh, Rose mentioned camp is coming up. Um, camp this year is going to be around the theme of peace, um, is, is where we're going to go. And I was thinking about this theme, and I was thinking about uh, tangentially a few years ago when I was in youth work, uh, we used to run this... Uh, youth centre called Zeal, um, where we'd have these Friday night gigs, and some of these gigs might have as many as three or four hundred young people come along to them. And there was one which I knew was going to be really manic. Um, some of them needed a lot of security; they were quite full on. Um, and uh, all afternoon, I was kind of in—I um, was in red brain. Do you know what I mean by that? Like I was in my like reptile brain. Like I was just not thinking straight. I was fight or flight mode. I was nervous about how this thing was going to go. Did not have a good to-do list. Anyone relate to this? No, right? Um, and there had been on the front of our cafe counter these flickering light bulbs for like probably about nine months, just these light bulbs that were behind this Perspex red sheet. And they were supposed to look just nice and frosty, but kind of two or three of them had been flickering for months and months. And it was about 15 minutes before this gig was about to start that for some reason I pulled out a screwdriver and unscrewed the front of this counter and began replacing these light bulbs. It's like, these light bulbs had been flickering for nine months. <laughs> I was about to do one of the biggest shows we'd done of the year, and I was being aware that I had done it. I'm changing mic, this thing's crazy. Um... Not even being aware that um, until I looked up that I had all these screws and these light bulbs around me and this gig was about to start. Um, and there is something about a, when you get in that headspace of like just kind of red brain, reptile brain, crazy making headspace, you end up doing things and you go, why the heck am I doing this? Can anyone relate to this at all? Okay, so we live in this moment, right? Right now, here's the link. Um, we live in this moment of like incredible anxiety, I think, of incredible exhaustion. We've just been through two years of COVID stuff. Um, there is a whole bunch of stuff in our world to be worried about. There's climate change. Um, there, is, um, uh, there are issues of, of colonisation we're wrestling through. Um, queer members of this community have had a hard time over the last few weeks too. There is a lot that is big at the moment, um, and uh, if we're not careful, we live in red brain at the moment, <laughs> we're all a bit fried, and there is so much in the world that needs to be fixed, and there's so much that is broken, and we are the kind of communities who love to go about mending those issues of injustice and of bringing reconciliation, but if we cannot get out of red brain, what we do in the world around us will all be out of our anxious urgency and not out of the peace of God. And we will find ourselves sitting in front of a counter pulling apart light bulbs at the moment when we actually kind of needed to have our heads in a place of listening to what the Father is doing rather than responding to our own anxiety. 
And so I think this time we're going to have at camp is really important because we need to dwell in the peace of God again um, so that this great stuff that a bunch of people in our communities do in their communities continue to be acts of peacemaking and peace and not acts of anxiety that actually perpetuate the thing that is going on around us at the moment, that we can actually only do what we see the Father doing. And I think this thing of peace is super important. There's a guy, Dave Andrews, uh, Waiters Union on um, in the Gold Coast, and he has this phrase, unless you transform your pain, you will transmit it. Unless you transform your pain, you will transmit it. And we're in a moment of pain, eh? Um, and so I think this weekend we have at camp, I would so encourage you guys to get along because I think it is so key that we spend some time dwelling in God's peace so that our pain and our ache for a changed world and our, our wish that things would be different in so many places and just our pervasive sense of exhaustion and anxiety can be transformed into something that can actually be beneficial to the neighbourhoods and the people we love. Um, Kapai? Yeah? Um, that's what I'm excited about for camp. So that's not my sermon, but a little bit of framing then. Um, and you're going to hear from me next week too, apparently. So um, two weeks of Scotty, woohoo. Um, cool. So I'm going to kick into um, a great passage for today from Luke 14, 22 to 35. And I do not know how this passage ended up in the lectionary on Father's Day. I do not know how it happened. But when I read the passage, you're going to think, that was poor planning, Anglican Church. What were you thinking? But here we go. Okay, I'm going to read it. And uh, feel free to gasp as um, I go through it. Here we go. So it's Luke 14, 22 to 35. Now large crowds were traveling with him, with Jesus. And he turned and said to them, whoever comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, Yes, and even life itself cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. For which of you intending to build a tower does not first sit down and estimate the cost to see whether he or she has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when she has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it will begin to ridicule her, saying, This person began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to wage war against another king will not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000? If he cannot, then while the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. So therefore, none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. What a passage, eh? None of you can be my disciple unless you hate your mum, hate your dad, hate your brother, hate your sister. Um, before you think about following me, you should make sure that you've completely counted the cost or the whole thing might go to shit. Um, uh, and um, if you want to follow me, give away everything you have. This is the word of the Lord. Let's worship. Um, so huge passage and hugely sobering and, and quite intense, eh? Um, and uh, on Father's Day, hate your family. Um, <laughs> there's a key thing we need to understand here about what's going on. Um, Rose, how many people do you think are in the room right now? 50. Okay. So Rose reckons there's 50 in the room. <laughs> Rose reckons there's 50 in the room. Rose, tomorrow when I tell people how many people are a blueprint, how many do you think I'll say? 80. 80. Yeah, totally. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> 
Um, I am a bit of a chronic exaggerator at times. Um, I came to faith as a Pentecostal, you know, with jump around rallies. So I just can't help but say there were a thousand first time commitments to Jesus every gig I go to. Like it doesn't matter if there were 900 people there. Like that's just, you know, I do hyperbole. Um, and I'm actually, I'd like to just defend myself briefly because I'm actually in the Jewish tradition um, here. I'm actually in the tradition of Jesus um, because that's actually um, what is going on here in this passage, maybe in a slightly different way, um, is, um, is there was this Jewish tradition of hyperbole that would go on. So Jesus begins this passage, um, unless you hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, you cannot be my disciple. It's hyperbole. It's a common thing in their language. He's not saying you should actually hate your mum, your dad, your brother, and your sister. This would be similar to Matthew 5.29. Matthew 5.29 says, if your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Now, from what I know of the early church, there weren't a lot of people walking around with one eye, one hand, and one foot. So clearly people did not take this stuff seriously. They knew that this was hyperbole, that it was Jesus emphasizing how much greater is God than the things you cling to in this earth. How much greater is the intimacy that you can have with your Father in heaven than the intimacy you can hope to have even with your blood relatives here on earth. So there's hyperbole going on here. But the thing we can do sometimes when we talk about um, that, that I've heard this passage preached on before and people will say it's hyperbole and then they go, so it's actually not a big deal. No, 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 it is a big deal. It's a big deal in a different way. It's still, this passage is still deeply offensive and chilling. It's just not telling you to hate your mum and dad. It's not telling you to not give that card that you've written for your dad to him. <laughs> But it is deeply offensive, and it is deeply hard. And I've done a bit of a summary of this verse, of kind of how I read it. Um, this is the uh, NRSR, the New Revised Scotty Reeve edition. Um, and it goes like this. It says, following me is the most important choice you will make in your life. More important than family, more important than your reputation, and more important than money. Following me means I become the center of your life, and you should have a good think about whether you're ready for that. It's what this passage is speaking to, and that's still heavy, eh? That's still big. Um, and so I want to look through this. Uh, I want to look through this passage today um, through three different ideas, which conveniently all start with an F, which is great. Um, so I want to look at family. I want to look at the place of family. I want to look at the place of foolishness, and I want to look at the place of finance um, as three things that come out in this passage. And the first of those from verse 25 and 26, family. Unless you hate your mother. Father, brother and sister, you cannot be my disciples. Very powerful words. It might remind us of another passage from Matthew 12, where we hear that Jesus' mother and brothers come to find him. Now, Jesus' mothers and brothers were often, his mother and brothers, um, were often quite freaked out about what Jesus was doing because he was a little too above the radar and not having the full picture of what was happening they were like, if you keep talking like this, you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to get yourself killed. And in the same way as any good family would, they were trying to protect their child from making a mess of his life. They just didn't realize that was kind of the point. Um, and so it says this, while he was still speaking to the crowds, his mother and his brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. But to the one who had told them this, Jesus replied, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. 
For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Man, that would have hurt to be his mother, eh? <laughs> to come to the door and someone comes out and says, Jesus doesn't know who his mother is. He says, everyone's his mother now. Like, what is, what is Jesus up to in this passage? Is he trying to hurt his family? <laughs> like, <laughs> um, is he trying to hurt his family? What I think is actually going on here, and it happens all throughout the Gospels, is Jesus is doing a radical reconstruction of what family is. He's doing a radical reconstruction of what family is. Um, nothing mattered more than family to the people hearing Jesus at this time. But he is saying what you think is family, oh, it's just so, so, so much bigger. A few years ago, um, I used to live in this house called the Goat Shed. Um, it was called the Goat Shed for two reasons. One, because we had a legacy of goats who lived there um, at different times. Um, we, um, the last one we had, Clarence Thomas II, lasted three days. Um, but man, he had a great three days, eh? Um, such a good run. Um, and um, so we had, we had goats there, and then um, it definitely was a shed. Like, this thing was Black Mould City. Um, we actually, at one point, we had this couch, which always had a perfect outline of Black Mould around it. And one day we finally pulled it out from the wall and we realised that was because you could actually reach outside through the wall. Like the, it was a load-bearing couch, really. Um, it was quite, quite incredible. Um, and, um, and what happened along the way, a bunch of us were in youth work and so we'd have these different young guys come and stay with us at different points who would be kicked out of home or on the streets going through rough times. And on this one occasion, a mate of mine, Mason, who worships out with a Lyle Bay mob, went up to a guy who was having a really tough time in fielding who he'd been connected with. And he went up there to meet this guy and his auntie. And Mason goes in and he sits down on the couch and starts yarning with this 15-year-old. And then the 15-year-old's auntie comes out with two bags and puts them down and says, he's yours now. And so Mason arrives back this evening with this 15-year-old and seven or eight of us immature, like, 19, 20-year-olds suddenly become surrogate dads to this 15-year-old. <laughs> uh, it was just wild. Um, but he kind of beautifully, by miracle of God's grace, became this part of our family, came to know Jesus, was baptised, we, as we often do, baptised in freezing winter temperatures at the south coast. Um, and, um, and over the years, ended up, um, he ended up doing a youth work diploma, and we ended up going to his wedding a couple of years ago. Um, and there's just, man, this, this beautiful thing I think about in that, and maybe it was we were too young and naive, but we never thought that this 15-year-old would not move in with us. <laughs> Like, he arrived and we never thought send him back to his auntie. Um, because I think in that space, the conversations we were having was fostering families with fuzzy and stretchy boundaries around them. Um, and understanding that actually Jesus radically reconstructs family. James 1.27 says this, Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Pure religion means caring for the kids who have no parents and caring for the destitute people who have no one to support them. And you know, one of the first things that early church was known for was it was just packed with destitute women and their children. Like it was just packed to the rafters because there was no social safety net. These women and their kids had nowhere to go, but the church would take them. What a beautiful witness, eh? What a beautiful witness of the church that it was the place where women could go and be safe. Man, wouldn't we love to get their reputation back, eh? Like, so, so, so cool. So pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress. Um, Jesus de deconstructs and reconstructs family in a really, really powerful 
way. And we live in this time of kind of the nuclear family, you know, me and my kids, and we live under this one roof. And the nuclear family is really awesome for the people who are in it. Like, it's real. I grew up in a nuclear family. It was so good for me. But for anyone who has no one, it sucks because there's no way in. And so for the poor, for the gospel to be good news to people, our families have to have stretchy boundaries. We have to have wider. The nuclear family cannot heal our society. We need families that don't walk on blood alone, that are not bound by blood alone. True worship is to make family for those who have no family. See, one of the the stories, I think, the meta-narrative of Scripture, if you know that big phrase means like, what's the big story from Genesis to Revelation? One of the meta-narratives of Scripture is humanity realizing more and more that God's arms are wider open than they ever thought they were. Humanity gradually realizing that God's arms are wider open than they ever thought they were. So it begins with a man. It begins with Abraham. And Abraham hears it's going to be about a family. And that family, it becomes about a tribe. And the tribe becomes about a people. And the people become about a nation. And Christ comes and it becomes about the whole world. And it's us understanding that this God and this good news that we thought was just for a few selected people was for everybody. And the arms are opening wider and wider and wider and wider. And that is who we are called to be. Is to be a family that is not on having the same politics as me or having the same biology as me, but one that opens itself to all and so opens itself to the widow and the orphan and those who have no nuclear family, that they become a part of the family of God to redefine family as we open our arms to all. So simply put, I think, for a room like this, what does this mean? It means the cool need to get out of our cliques. It's a kind of a family. The cool need to get out of their cliques. The intelligent need to get out of their ivory towers and step down among those who would never have the opportunities they would have. The middle class need to get out of the suburbs. True worship is caring for widows and orphans in their distress. So point number one, the invitation of Christ is a radical reconstruction of family. And that is what Jesus is saying when, you, when he says you must hate your mother, your father, your brother, your sister. He says it's too narrow for this good news. That's too small. That vision is, that vision is pathetic. I want the whole world to know love. I want the whole world to know what it is to belong to this family. That's what we're after. That's good news to the poor. That's release to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. Hey? That's the real stuff. So family, the invitation of Christ is a radical reconstruction of family. Secondly, foolishness, uh, verses 27 to 32. Jesus um, is, uh, in this part of the passage, he talks about setting out to build a tower, and then he talks about taking an army out to win a battle. And Jesus is actually referencing some current events that were going on around him at the time. So there was this amphitheater built near where he was speaking at the time. And uh, it was poorly built, and this thing actually collapsed a few years earlier and killed 50,000 people. So when Jesus is talking about this tower that was poorly built, everyone who's hearing him is going, oh, that amphitheater, that was really badly built, and heaps of people died. And then he talks about this king who goes out to win a battle and like just did not bring enough people, did not prepare. Um, recently at this time, um, Herod Antipas had sent out uh, uh, a regiment against a Roman vassal state and got absolutely smashed. And so Jesus is kind of mocking Herod at the same time here. He's going, imagine there was a king who didn't take enough people to battle. What would happen to him? Um, and people are having a good laugh at that. Um, 
What is Jesus, um, and, and, and as we think about that, we might also think of Matthew 7. Um, some of you will know, those of you who, um, who have uh, at some stage been to Sunday school will probably have heard over and over and over again about the wise man who built his house on the rock and the foolish man um, who built it on sand and the foolish man's house got washed away and the one on the rock stayed. Similar kind of message that Jesus has here. But what is he saying here? What he's saying here is that to follow Christ will ask everything of you. And are you ready for this? To follow Christ will ask everything of you. And are you ready for this? We're coming into a time where it is so lame to be a Christian (laughs) that there is just no point being a nominal Christian anymore. There's just no point. (laughs) There's no point turning up to church on a Sunday to feel a little bit better about yourself. Because there's no social capital to being a Christian anymore. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it hard out. You might as well believe the words that Jesus said, eh? And you might as well live as if he actually died and rose again. And anything less than that, I love what Paul says. Um, I think it's in, uh, in Romans. He says, you know, he says, if the dead are not raised, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Like, actually, eh? Like, if you're not really in it, please go have a burger welly. Have a beer. Have ten. Because if the dead are not raised, you know, we might as well just hedonistically enjoy ourselves to the end of our lives, right? There's no point in a nominal Christianity anymore. There's nothing in it for you. Might as well burn it to the ground. Go. Do what you want. Um, So we need to, there is no point in nominal Christianity. We need to ask ourselves, Jesus is asking everything of us. Are we ready to say yes to that? Are we willing to pay the cost for what that means? Are we actually willing to have Jesus turn our lives upside down rather than just be a nice accessory to our lives, like a Gucci bag with a cross on it or something like that? You know, is this what we want? And I think one of the biggest things for a crew like us in this room um, to ask around that, there are many aspects to that, but I think one of the aspects we could ask is, are you ready to be misunderstood? Are you ready to be misunderstood? Are you ready to be thought stupid by friends and family? Are you ready to give your all to something that looks ridiculous? I uh, remember um, around that same time I was living in that flat working for this, um, the youth agency I was talking about earlier, um, and I was finishing an honours in media at Vic and um, you know, had done my uni study, probably supposed to go into like a government job at that point, like nothing wrong with the government job, but that is not where I ended up. I started volunteering for this youth trust, ended up getting employed, and each week I would go out to see my parents and uh, on the table, um, this was back in the days where job ads were in the newspaper, um, and um, they would have cut out a few and just put them there for me, <laughs> just to let me know, Scotty. There are real jobs out there if you want them. You can have them. <laughs> um, and it was this thing where this way that um, I was walking just seemed so incredibly foolish to them to say yes to what Jesus was saying to me. And they're like, come on, get on the gravy train. Much like I think Jesus' parents just wanting to protect, just wanting to make sure their kid did good. Um, but sometimes your kids don't need protection when they're following Jesus. So I'm... Um, There was this deep misunderstanding, and I thought when I finally got out of zeal that that misunderstanding would end, and then the first thing that um, happened was that uh, I felt God really clearly speak to me one day that I needed to come and lead this church. I led this for five years before Rose did. 
And then what happened is I was in the church and all my social justice friends misunderstood me. They're like, you've sold out to the church thing. <laughs> you know, it was like I left one misunderstanding. It almost became a little bit more appropriate to my parents, but totally inappropriate to some of my friends. Because you've bought into the colonial power now. What are you doing there? We used to rage against this stuff, you know? I'm like, oh, you know, went on a few years and then I ended up getting ordained a priest. <laughs> And then, you know, you're, you're, you, I feel deeply called. I know, that is, I know that is where I'm meant to be. But when I step into this beast called the Anglican Church with 500 years of history and a global communion, then suddenly I get tarred with every brush of every decision that institution makes for the last few hundred years and makes today. Now, I don't necessarily back all of those decisions. This is my whanau. But I don't necessarily back it all to the hilt, you know. But this is my family, so we rage together about how we don't always back things to the hilt. But again, I'm misunderstood. And I'm beginning to wonder if that is just the journey of following Jesus, is that if you continue to follow him deeper and deeper, that you're actually just more and more misunderstood. And I don't mean misunderstood in that kind of like, I don't know, sort of um, Instagram kind of way of nobody gets me. <laughs> but I mean like really misunderstood, you know? Um, it's interesting, eh? In the early church, like I think we like to think sometimes that the church at this moment in history is particularly irrelevant or particularly out of touch. Um, but we're actually not, um, in some ways, we're actually very similar to what the church has always been. One of some of the confusions early on for the early church is they talked about the body and the blood, um, and the locals thought they were cannibals. No joke thought the early church were eating each other's body and blood. <laughs> like, it's, no one thinks we're cannibalizing each other at the moment, eh? <laughs> and then the other thing alongside that, they called each other brother and sisters. So they thought they were incestuous. So the early church had a reputation. I'm not making this stuff up. This is documented history. The early church was seen to be incestuous cannibals. You can't get more misunderstood than that, right? <laughs> like, if you're feeling misunderstood for being a Christian right now, you're not quite there yet. I think we've just always been a little bit misunderstood. One of my favorite lines at the moment is when someone says, we just need to, be, we just need to get back to being like the early church, eh? And I'm like, have you read the New Testament? <laughs> I'm like, yeah, we just need to get back to sleeping with our mother-in-laws and getting drunk on communion wine. Like, the church has always been full of broken people who are trying to follow Jesus, misunderstood by the people around them. And if you feel misunderstood, you are deeply in the company of Jesus, who no one really understood, and you're deeply in the company of the historic church. When Jesus called his disciples, they would have been those insane people who left their good jobs and their good families to go and do something that made no sense to people. To follow Jesus is an invitation to foolishness. It's an invitation to be misunderstood by all. And that's because others only see what we stand to lose, but we know what we stand to gain. Others only see what we stand to lose, but we see what we stand to gain, and that is Jesus himself, and he's all that matters. You know? We are seeing something others don't see, and in reference to Christ resurrected, which no one else believes in, we believe the whole universe is different, and so we live differently, and we look crazy. We believe a thing happened that people see no evidence for. We should look crazy if we believe that. Not in a destiny church kind of way, not in a put your tent on parliament kind of way, 
but in a way where we will throw away all of who we are for the good news of the gospel. Paul said it really well, Philippians 3.8, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So point number two, the invitation of Christ is a radical invitation to foolishness. And point number one again, the invitation of Christ is a radical reconstruction of family. Third F is finance. Verse 33, so therefore none of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. None of you can become my disciple if you do not give up all of your possessions. So I'm just going to stop here and I'm going to give you a count number and you're all going to drop your savings into it. Not funny. Um, all right. <laughs> Too soon. Um, um, some of you might be thinking of another passage from Luke 18. Um, it's the story of the rich young ruler. Um, this guy comes along to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, um, you have to obey all the commandments. And the rich young ruler says, yeah, of course I have. I've nailed all the commandments. And Jesus kind of senses this guy is a little bit cocky. And he replies to him, there is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor. And then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the rich young ruler heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. There'd be very few people in Aotearoa, New Zealand, who globally, we couldn't say, have wealth. I'd be willing to bet that probably Jesus would say everyone in this room has wealth. That's maybe, no, I'll leave that with you to decide. But, but you know, we do very well in this country. What I'm, what I'm meaning to say is I don't think we should not start to listen to this passage as if we are the poor or are exempt. There's something about Western countries where we always assume we're the good guys in every Bible passage we read. <laughs> and we're often Egypt or we're often Babylon or we're often Rome. Um, Jesus backs this idea up in other passages like Matthew 6, 19. He says, um, moth and rust um, will decay, but where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Wherever your wealth is, that's where your heart really is. I mean, I can think of this, I don't know if um, any of you experienced this, but I've had seasons in my life um, where um, my well-being um, sits upon my next payday. <laughs> You know, where I breathe a little shallower up to payday and then payday comes and suddenly I feel a little bit better. Um, you know, we're actually like my ability to walk healthy and whole in the world. Now, I'm not talking about people who can't afford the basic things of life. But I'm saying for some of us, we probably just get a little anxious about not being able to get the curry we wanted to, eh? That money can have a hold on us. Let me pivot a little. Um, a little while ago, um, I went through a... Um, a really big uh, um, marriage breakup, and um, and one of the things I realised in the midst of that is how easy it is for the human heart to go towards bitterness. So easy to become bitter when you feel hurt by someone or hurt by a group. Um, and I, um, one of the practices God led me to was each night before I went to, to bed, I would um, get a piece of paper and I would write a prayer of forgiveness um, for my ex. And I would write a blessing for her, 
and I would read that out, even if I didn't feel like reading it out, and I would put it in a jar, and I would give that to God. And probably by the end of last year, there were about 120, 150, probably more like 70, um, but um, <laughs> 300. There were 300 prayers in this jar. Um, and um, <laughs> um, anyway, there was over 100. There were all these prayers in this jar. Um, and um, the initial thing behind that, I think, is I'd been thinking, um, I need to forgive to let that person go. What I realized in time is that what I was actually doing was spiritual hygiene for my own heart as well. That every time I forced myself to forgive where I didn't feel I could, um, to bless um, where I didn't feel I could, my heart dropped all that grossness from the day that it had been, that it was a continual practice of cleansing my heart so that the roots of bitterness could not hold on in there. Bitterness has like a real seductive power to it, eh? Like it's real seductive. Um, and if you're not careful, you start to believe that bitterness is justice. Hey, which is like, oh man, they are so far, they're so far apart. Bitterness is not justice. And so why I talk about this um, in this section on, on finance is because like bitterness, wealth is a really seductive power that can gradually grab hold of us. And if you're not careful, you begin to believe that wealth is your right or your blessing. And just like we need practices of forgiveness to liberate us from bitterness, we need practices of radical generosity to liberate us from the potential of our finances owning our hearts. Does that make sense? Just like we need practices of community to protect us from individualism, just like we need practices of worship to protect us from thinking we are God, we need practices of radical generosity to keep us from the seductive power of wealth. Um, the other night I got a call, um, uh, this happens a few times a year, where someone will have just been hard up on money um, and um, they'll just find church numbers and just start calling churches around Wellington to help them out, which is actually kind of a cool thing, eh? That like people are struggling and they just get on Google <laughs> and they're like, where's a the church? They'll help me out. And sometimes they're true and sometimes they're a have. Um, there's definitely like definitely a bit of a... Um, a rotation of some folks out there who, who know bleeding heart Christians, <laughs> and, but there are also a bunch of people in need who think of the church as the first place. Um, the last time that I responded to one of these, I got like quite burned by it, and I got this call the other night, and this guy says, I need $90, I'll pay you back on Wednesday. I didn't even know his name. But what I did see within that was an opportunity for me to part myself from my wealth, and regardless of whether that wealth actually was used for good or for ill, it was an opportunity for me to step into radical generosity. And when we think about what grace is, Christ dies for all, regardless of whether those people will receive him or not, eh? Christ dies for people who do not love him. While we were still far off, Christ died for us. And so the point of our faithfulness, the point of our radical generosity is not its impact, the point is sometimes the cleansing of our own hearts and the hygiene of our own spirit. And I would um, put that out here tonight that I think some of the best stuff I've done with money over my life is like radical generosity where I don't know where it goes <laughs> and where I don't even know if it went somewhere good. And you know, it's funny, like, we definitely don't think about our time the same way we think about our money. Nobody sits down before they binge a whole weekend on Netflix 
and thinks to myself, could that be a waste? <laughs> but the moment somebody asks us for $90 of our money, we go, well, will they use it for good? Interesting delineations, eh? And whenever you try to challenge a church room on how they spend their money, they'll say, well, time is generosity too, Scotty. You're like, yep, that's true, but that doesn't stop the conversation about our finance and the potential for that to get hold of our hearts. So unless you respond to your daily practice of buying a morning coffee with a daily practice of giving to those who have nothing, you won't become his disciple. Unless you respond to your weekly practice of filling up your car with a weekly practice of filling those who have nothing, you will not become his disciple. Unless you respond to your annual practice of going on holiday with an annual practice of generosity to those who can't escape the hell they live in, you will not become his disciple. Get free from the trap of wealth on your life before the $10 bottle of wine you bought for a dinner becomes a $15 and then a $20 and a $30 and a $40 and a $50 bottle and your comfort standard raises before your generosity to those who need it the most and you giving that stuff back to God. That's what I'm saying. And the, uh, the one thing I would add to that Many of you will know that story of um, the widow's offering in the scriptures. This is not about how much you give. This is about you sitting before God and honestly knowing that what's in your bank account is yielded to him. That's what I'm talking to here. Me and the room went real quiet, eh? Um, none of you can be my disciple if you do not give up all your possessions. The invitation of Christ is an invitation to absurd generosity. So there's three points. Number one, the invitation of Christ is a radical reconstruction of family. Point number two, the invitation of Christ is a radical invitation to foolishness. And point number three, the invitation of Christ is an invitation to absurd generosity. Now, some of you are hearing this now and you're feeling how I felt when I prepared this. Um, I get to prepare for this moment here that you're all looking at me like, uh, uh. Um, I get to feel that myself um, and then no one's looking at me and not seeing me go, all my money? Um, <laughs> um, and as I was sitting there looking at this, I like really identified with that rich young ruler in that moment. Um, I was like, I think I need to go away sad because I don't want to part from any of this. That's what it says, eh? the rich young ruler, give everything you have to the poor, and it says he went around sad. Um, but here I want to give you the good news of Jesus, because I don't just want to, we don't just want to be smashed eh, and have no way home. Like I think, you know, um, God's kindness draws us to repentance, but then there is always an invitation for us to come back to him and to be faithful again. That passage goes on like this. When he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? Fair enough, eh? Who can radically reconstruct family? Who can be foolish consistently and still feel alive? Who can be absurdly generous and not just have their whole life go away sad? Hey, like this is a hard ask, eh? These are hard asks. This is not a fair ask. I don't think Jesus is being very fair here. Does anyone agree? <laughs> Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? 
Jesus replied, what is impossible for humans is possible for God. What is impossible for humans is possible for God. The good news of Jesus is that what is impossible for humans to grit and do by their own strength is possible with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit in friendship with Jesus. You cannot go away from here tonight and try to blur the lines of your family and just nail it. You cannot go away from here tonight and try to be more of a fool and nail it. You cannot go away from here tonight and be absurdly generous unless the Spirit comes and changes something in your heart to do that, eh? And it wouldn't be right. Otherwise, what you're doing tonight is we're doing religion. We don't want to do religion. We want to do walking with Jesus, eh? What is impossible for humans is possible for God when God's Holy Spirit empowers us to do it. It's our human nature to draw small lines for family, but it is the nature of God to widen our hearts. It's our human nature to protect our reputation, but it is the nature of God to make us fools for him. It's our human nature to hold on to what we have, but it is the nature of God to make us radically generous. And it's only by God's Spirit that we can live into being these people. But the beautiful thing about this is that we do not need to live the story of every other human throughout history, but we actually can be transformed into these people. Final story I, I want to share. A few years ago, I got to um, meet one of my heroes. Um, he actually came to speak here at one point, this guy Shane Claiborne, um, who I just think is a, a legend, and many of you will be familiar with his work. But often when I go to hear a speaker speak, I normally sit there in the audience and I look at that person and I go, I'll never be like you. <laughs> I'll never be like, I can never, I can never be that. And there was something in the way that he presented, in the way that he spoke, and I felt that the Spirit spoke to me that this is someone who has made one brave decision every day for Jesus, and this is who they have become. And I think that is what we're called to do with this stuff, that if we want to blur the lines, if we want to have stretchy family, if we want to be fools for Jesus, if we want to give everything we have for him, then we take one brave step today. We say, Jesus, what is that one brave step I can take today? And we ask the Holy Spirit's empowerment to do it. And then in 10 years, we wake up and we're like, holy heck, how did I become this person? Because God has done a transforming work in us. So this is a hard word, but I think um, Jesus offers us a way which is better for us and better for the world and the neighborhoods that we're called to serve. Um, and it is a beautiful invitation. Mm. Why don't I pray a second? Um, do the music people want to get up here? Loving God, I know um, our propensity to fall into guilt and shame in these spaces. And that is not what we want here, Holy Spirit, tonight. Um, yeah, we want your conviction and not condemnation. So as we hear these hard words, um, Jesus, I pray that you would come near to us. Just invite anyone um, to just open your hands um, to receive. And we just pray, Holy Spirit, come. And that you would go down to the deepest parts of us, that we would sense your touch and that you would begin this transforming work. Lord, we, we ask for one step to take closer with you to be the people you have called us to be.